I have found out beat news in depth for you. Happy Pride, everyone, and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. We begin tonight with Professor Abby Bogoloni from Santa Rosa Junior College. She's here to talk about an LGBT literature course that she's going to be teaching this fall. Now, it's only the second time this course has been offered, and it's unique here to the North Bay. It's really part of a greater effort from the Santa Rosa Junior College to make the campus more welcoming to LGBT students. And four years ago tomorrow, the United States Supreme Court put California's Proposition 8 to rest for good. Chris Perry and Sandy Steer were two of the four plaintiffs in the case, and they have a new book out that tells their story as a couple and their journey through the courts with Proposition 8. It's called Love on Trial. Chris and Sandy are here with us tonight to celebrate Pride and to share more about their story. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, June 25th, 2017. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of June 25th, 2017. Google's philanthropic branch, Google.org, is donating $1 million to preserve an oral history of the Stonewall Riots, one of the most famous places where the LGBT civil rights movement began this week, 38 years ago. Senator Chuck Schumer announced yesterday that funding will go to the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center to start the project. He said, quote, With this money, the center will collaborate with the National Park Foundation to better educate the community about this extraordinary history, end quote. Individuals present at the riots will have a chance to have their stories preserved so that future generations will know what really happened over several days in the summer of 1969, as members of the community fought back against police harassment specifically and a society that refused to accept them generally. William Floyd, Google's head of external affairs in New York, is credited with coming up with the idea. The Stonewall Inn was named a national monument last year. There's been some concern that the Trump administration could take away that designation after the president signed an executive order instructing the Secretary of the Interior to look at all of the designations made over the last 21 years. Schumer added, quote, I pledge to you that I will do everything in my power to make sure the designation of the Stonewall is set in stone, end quote. And Pride Month is one of the many great opportunities for LGBTQ people to come out. And this week, South Bend, Indiana, woke up to news that their mayor, Pete Buttigieg, who is a Rhodes Scholar, Harvard grad, and served in Afghanistan as a lieutenant in the Navy, came out as gay in a lengthy op-ed piece published in the South Bend Tribune. The 32-year-old mayor wrote, quote, I was well into adulthood before I was prepared to acknowledge the simple fact that I am gay. It took years of struggle and growth for me to recognize that it's just a fact of life, like having brown hair. It's part of who I am. Putting something this personal on the pages of a newspaper doesn't come easy. But we Midwesterners are instinctively private to begin with, and I'm not used to viewing this as anyone else's business. It's clear to me at a moment like this that being more open about who I am could do some good. For a local student struggling with their sexuality, it might be helpful to have an openly gay mayor to send a message that the community will always have a place for them. And also former NFL lineman Ryan O'Callaghan, who played for the New England Patriots and Kansas City Chiefs, has come out of the closet this week in a moving interview he gave for Out Sports. O'Callaghan, who spent five years in the NFL, never expected to have a post-football life. 
He was deeply closeted and unable to imagine living as an openly gay man. Instead of coming out or continuing to live with the pain of life in the closet, he planned to commit suicide after he retired from the game. O'Callaghan wrote, quote, I was close. If it wasn't for some good friends, a couple of good dogs, I'd be gone, end quote. And then he added, I'm just glad to be where people were looking out for me, pushing me in the right direction to actually get help. He also struggled with drug addiction. He told out sports that he was abusing painkillers, and it not only helped with the pain of his injuries, but also the pain from being gay. O'Callaghan credits a small group of people within the Chiefs organization that helped him find a better place, including the team's general manager, Scott Pioli. He reassured Callahan that he still had Pioli's support and shared that he had many gay people in his life and had previously counseled other gay NFL players. And finally, Washington, D.C. residents will soon have the option to identify their gender as X on district-issued identification cards and driver's licenses. The announcement comes just days after the Oregon Department of Motor Vehicles announced that it would, too, begin offering X for gender non-specified as an alternative to male and female, effective July 1 of this year. For a calendar of LGBT news and events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the latest LGBT news headlines we're following, go to our website at OutbeatNews.com. For KRCB's Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Santa Rosa Junior College has been working hard to create a campus that's welcoming to LGBT students. One of the recent additions is an LGBT literature course, and here to tell us more about it is Professor Abby Bogoloni. Professor, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here, but before we get talking about this new class, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to create an LGBT literature course. Well, I have been trying to create a course like this for the last 20 years. Uh, I came of age in the 70s uh, when women's centers were just being formed in our colleges. And uh, as the, all the movements for human rights began, uh, I was involved you know, with everyone. And um, being a lesbian myself, uh, being part of the gay liberation movement and the gay and lesbian movement and then the GLBT movement, um, it's a natural um, growth of this. Um, but it took me um, it took me about 10 years to develop this course. I used to work with City College of San Francisco and um, coming here we just needed to expand our literature uh, program. It's very powerful to have students read literature in which their lives are represented. And this has been an omission for the majority of college texts that are being offered. So we needed this course. And that makes total sense. And I know Santa Rosa JC has been working hard, as we've reported on this show, to make the campus a more inclusive space for LGBT students. Catch us up a little bit. What are some of the other things that the campus has done? Well, we formed a uh, LGBT Presidential Advisory Committee after our climate, national climate survey showed that um, we could do a little better in terms of welcoming and retaining our LGBTQ population. And I'm part of that, um, the President's Advisory Committee. And um, right now they have the opportunity to um, 
uh, put a preferred name into admissions and records so that um, they can be referred to in the way they, they in class, um, with what fits their identity. And so uh, we've also worked with putting in um, all gender restrooms around campus. We still have a long way to go, but we definitely have, um, we have a number of them on the Santa Rosa campus, like Bailey, in Bailey, in Towser Gym, in Plover Hall, Bertolini Student Center, and the Button Building. But um, with this course, again, the first thing I, I mentioned before was that students get to see themselves in the literature. And they get to be in an environment where they're, they're accepted and they're not in this unsafe um, environment where people don't know. We have such a diverse population, uh, people coming from all walks of life, all ages, um, all states in the country, and we have international students. And so um, particularly for our, our younger students who are really, this might be their first year in college, they don't know what to expect. Well, right. And then when you flip through the college catalog and you see a course in LGBT studies, that's a signal that the college knows you're there. So tell us about the course itself and some of the books and literature you're going to be looking at. Um, this is a survey course, and we're, we have to do a great deal in the course. We're looking at literature, but we're also needing to contextualize the ways in which uh, gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender identity and expression have been um, regarded through time. So uh, we're using a we're using novels and short stories and poetry and film because the it the course is English thirty six LGBT arts and literature. So we we're really it's it, it's huge. We're spanning so much um, in terms of. The actual literature, we're reading a novel by the great James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room, groundbreaking. Baldwin was out of the closet in the late 1950s, and Giovanni's Room um, blew people's minds because here you have this African-American um, leader in civil rights um, discussing uh, race and um, looking at, at ways U.S. society needs to change. Uh, write about um, Euro two European white men in love in France. Complete flip, but uh, the book is brilliant. It really deals with the closet uh, and the internalized homophobia that the men go through. So that's a, a great novel. We're looking at the graphic novel uh, Fun Home by Alison Bechtel. Many of you might recall uh, reading about her, uh, her play on Broadway, or you might have seen the San Francisco production, which is fabulous. But uh, Fun Home, the, the actual novel, or graphic novel, um, is, uh, is deeper um, with more layers than the Broadway show, although the Broadway show was fantastic. Um, and so there'll be a lot of um, a lot of room to um, to reflect and see some of our own experiences in the ways we might deal with an LGBTQ uh, parent or uh, brother or sister who may not be out. Uh, then there's um, Rupert Fruit Jungle, um, which was written in this in the splash of coming out of the 70s. Uh, Rita Mae Brown by Rita Mae Brown. Um, a real celebration of lesbian love. And uh, we'll uh, see films and discuss the uh, multiple versions of said films. Uh, Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof 
There was the very famous um, mainstream film with Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor, um, where the complete gay subtext is is erased. And frankly, the plot makes no sense without that. It took, um, on Broadway, the same thing happened. In other words, the Broadway um, rendition was the same. It was erased completely. Uh, three or four years after the first film with Paul Newman, um, American Playhouse came out with a version which uh, included the subtext, and you could, you know, you could see um, a deeper theme happening because of that. Um, so we're going to look at both and and analyze. Well, what was it? You know, what was omitted and what was added, and so forth. So that's going to be fascinating. Um, Lillian Hellman's The Children's Hour, uh, which was so so subtle that even the uh, leads, the actresses in, in that film, had no idea that there was a gay subtext at the time. Um, that, that's pretty fascinating. Um, then with uh, transgender reality, we'll see the documentary by Gwen Hayworth, She's a Boy I Knew, a Canadian film that is, is a very, very sensitive look at the effect, um, not just Gwen's uh, transition, but the effect on her family and their actual understanding and support. Um, really, really fascinating. And then the, the classic, classic uh, Harvey Fierstein film, Torch Song Trilogy, which is a, a must-see uh, to understand um, some of the interpersonal dynamics uh, of the closet and misconceptions um, that homophobia uh, broadcasts. Uh, to um, gay and lesbian people's pain in the family, but it's also a celebration of identity. Wow, what a list of books and film. I don't know how you're going to get that all done in one semester, but it sounds really exciting. So as you look out toward the future for potentially expanding an LGBT studies program here at the college, what's your vision? I'd like to see our regular courses in behavioral sciences, um, let's see, behavioral sciences and social sciences and sociology and, and, and the hard sciences and STEM courses and English include LGBTQ content in existing courses. That's the first thing. And then um, we're hoping that um, instructors in other departments develop new courses that uh, will look at a, a piece of where their discipline intersects with LGBTQ concerns. And then we do have a women and gender studies AA degree uh, currently, and we're looking, we're looking to include, basically widen it for it to be a complete gender studies um, AA. Excellent. But for now, this course is available, and registration is already underway for the fall semester. It's going to be meeting on Monday nights from 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, tell us, do you have to be a student already at Santa Rosa JC, or can anybody sign up for this course? No, we are open access. You go online, there's an um, application to fill out. Um, you can upload it. And um, if you want to work person to person, just come on into Plover Hall, and somebody's going to help you with that 100%. Uh, but most folks can most folks can register online with no problem at all. Great. So if you're interested in this course, just go to santarosa.edu and look for the links to apply for admission and register for the course. And if you missed that website, we'll have it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Professor, congratulations on this new LGBT literature course at Santa Rosa JC. And thanks for stopping by to share some information about it. Happy Pride to you. My pleasure. Happy Pride to you and all.
And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth on KRCB-FM Radio 91. Well, over the years, we've talked with many of the key players in the California Proposition 8 case. And tonight, I'm excited to have Sandy Steer and Chris Perry with us to talk about their experience with the case and their new book. It's called Love on Trial. Chris and Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Well, it's wonderful to have you both here talking about this amazing new book called Love on Trial. But before we get to that story, let's go back to where you both grew up. Uh, both of you grew up in very rural areas of the country. Chris, let's start with you. You came from Bakersfield. What was it like coming out there, and when did you first discover you're a lesbian? I uh, went away to college in 1982, and by the end of that year, I had fallen in love with someone and went home for the summer and came out to my parents. They um, they were a little surprised at first, but they they were supportive, and that was for me at eighteen when I came out, and I've been out ever since. And how did that process go for you? Did you find acceptance? Well, it, you know, it, it went as it, I think it went as well for me as it as it often goes for folks. I, I certainly had an easier time of it than lots of other people I've talked to over the years. But it's an interesting thing coming out. You're never done. It was just the first time I came out was at 18. I I come out all the time still. I'm 52 years old, and if I meet somebody new or if I have a new coworker or I meet somebody in Sandy's family or one of the boys' friends, that we have to revisit that same conversation over and over again your entire life. So I remember it well, but it was one time of probably hundreds of times since then. Right, right. Well, Sandy, your story is quite a bit different than Chris's. Talk a little bit about that and how you two met. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in rural Iowa on a family farm that was multi-generational and a world away from California. I moved to California right out of college. Um, I moved to San Francisco and just for the wild, fun adventure of it and because I had a job lined up there. Um, you know, I lived in, in the Bay Area for many years. I married a man and had two children, um, and, but didn't really feel like I had found true love um, on any measure. Um, that marriage ended up failing, and I met this beautiful woman named Chris Perry and fell madly in love with her, and it was probably as surprising to me as it was to a lot of, of people who I was close to, and I decided that that was just something that I had to have in my life, and I had to have Chris in my life. And the rest has kind of becomes history. And so how did your family react? Um, they were surprised and um, a little bit, you know, kind of slow in plotting in their response and, um, and acceptance. It took a while to, to I, see, I think, to feel like they really were comfortable with this change in me. Um, but at no time did I ever feel rejected by them. It was just a sort of a slow acceptance. Good, good. Well, let's talk about the book. It's called Love on Trial. And the way that you chose to wrote it, I think, was interesting. You sort of alternated chapters back and forth. And so you tell the same story, but each from your own unique perspective, uh, which is fantastic for readers. And before we get to the part about the Proposition 8 trial, you both wrote extensively about the love that you have for your children and the children that you brought now together to form this new family with two moms. Talk about the boys. How did they do with this change in this new family? Um, the boys did really, really well adapting to each other and accepting each other. 
And um, I have to say, they all these years later, um, there's not a lot of conflict between the two biological sets, you know, between those two sets. Um, I think any any conflict is more between biological brothers that is just sort of that general brotherly, you know, um, kind of thing that happens with boys, period. Um, but the older boys, they're a few years older than the younger boys, and that age difference may have actually um, been helpful for them um, because I think they, they saw them in a very protective light as, you know, much younger kids um, that they wanted to, you know, enjoy. And, but they also felt like we're almost a different generation in terms of school um, as with that age separation. So the kids have gotten along nicely, and they continue to have great relationships um, well into adulthood at this point. Um, but, you know, joining families together is a challenge, and it's, it's just sort of a logistical challenge and emotional challenge, and it, we had to really look at what we thought would be best for the kids and make some decisions around housing and lifestyle that would really help them all feel comfortable being in a larger family than they had been in before. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that your family as a structure and how close you all were really ended up being great evidence of what a family is and the normality of that family in the trial, right? Yeah, I think, well, it, on both fronts, I think for the legal team and other supporters of our legal fight, it was really important to have a couple, a plaintiff couple that was uh, that had a family and could talk about the importance of protecting our children, protecting our family, protecting our relationship, so that we were holding up that, that side of the, of the argument. But at the same time, I think we were modeling, I, 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 and I think we still try to model for people that, you know, these lasting relationships have so much more to them than only the legal protection. There's, there's love and understanding and commitment and patience, and your children can participate in that and benefit from that in ways that are even greater than I thought they would be when we were, when we were involved with the case. Right. Chris, in the book you wrote that you didn't consider yourself much of a romantic but that marriage was very important to you. Talk about that. Yeah, well, you know, I grew, as I said, I came out when I was 18. That was in 1982, 1983. At that point in time, there were really no, there were no, there were very few protections for LGBT individuals. There certainly was no marriage equality or um, there were no safe with marriage, same-sex marriage rights. And not only that, shortly afterward, there were more and more laws passed to sort of, discriminate against couples or individuals like me. There was Don't Ask, Don't Tell or the Defense of Marriage Act, and there were states passing laws that ban marriage. The unbelievable thing to me was not only falling in love with Sandy many, many, many years later, but feeling like there was this chance that maybe we would actually get to be married, that we actually would have a family like other people's families, that in my lifetime we would have traveled from a point where LGBT individuals were suffering great discrimination to, to a time where I'm a, I'm a legally, happily married woman to another woman, um, that we support our children and have them, and they've seen that all occur in their lifetimes, and it's a very, very hopeful, optimistic time compared to where things were when I started out. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, so much has happened. Uh, Sandy, how about for you? Were you ever feeling gun-shy about marrying Chris based on your prior experience with your first marriage? Um, you know, what I, I think when I left my first marriage, I, I wasn't really focused on marriage in my future. Um, but nor did I 
think it was even an option. Um, so I left that marriage um, knowing that I was, you know, very interested in Chris and then, of course, fell very deeply in love with her. But marriage just simply didn't seem to be on the horizon because it wasn't done um, at that time. And people had domestic partnership um, ceremonies sometimes, and that was, you know, definitely kind of beginning to pick up speed. But the concept of marriage just didn't seem even really possible for us in our relationship. And so I don't think I even had it to react to in terms of being gun shy. Well, and then Gavin Newsom changed all that, didn't he? 2004, he announces that he's going to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And you two got married during that time period. There was a bunch of back and forth with marriage being legal and then not legal. And then Proposition 8 came. Talk about the night when you heard Proposition 8 passed. Well, the night Prop 8 passed was really a, 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 you know, it was a terrible evening for us, us and for so many Californians. And I think like many other people, we were strong supporters of Obama in that election, that you know, amazing election where he won his first term of office. And yet we were completely uh, distressed and saddened by the fact that the majority of Californians had voted against our rights. And we were actually quite surprised. Um, I had felt so much more confident that Prop 8, in fact, would fail. And it was, you know, quite shocking that it, that it didn't. And it was a fairly narrow, narrow margin, but it, you know, it still passed nonetheless. And I, I think we felt like an incredible irony that our country had come so far in terms of electing our president, and yet the progressive state of California would not, was actually willing to change the Constitution to ensure that we did not have equal access to marriage, and that was definitely shocking. It was indeed a bittersweet night, that's for sure. But it wasn't too long after that the legal fight to challenge Prop 8 began. Rob Reiner and Chad Griffin were really at the genesis of all of this. And Chris, you had known them before. So tell us the story. How did it come that you were two of the four plaintiffs that were the foundation of this legal fight? Uh, Well, Chad Griffin and Rob Reiner had worked together for many, many years. They met at the White House when Chad worked there for the Clinton administration, and Rob was doing the American President movie prep, and they had worked really hard in California to come up with a new way to pay for early childhood education. And in doing that, um, they had passed a ballot measure called Prop 10, that was a tobacco tax that was distributed to counties to help families, low-income families with young children. I met them at that time when they were working on that, and we worked together for a number of years leading up to 2008. Um, And between the two of them, they they became very worried and upset and wanted to do something about Prop 8. And in an ordinary routine phone call with Chad about early childhood education, he said, said he was working on prop, something to do about Prop 8, and that led to him revealing more information about the legal team and asking if we had been married in the window. I think you know what the window is, that, that six months leading up to the election that people right. were marrying. We had not done that because we'd been married um, two times already, and neither of those had, had worked out on a legal level. So we were, we were waiting for a more permanent solution, and lo and behold, they were working on that too. They invited us to be plaintiffs, one of the plaintiff couples in the case. There's another couple um, in Los Angeles, and the rest is history. We we were happy to be asked, and it was a huge honor. As, as much trepidation and worry that we had about our own safety and our children's safety and, frankly, the outcome, they are terrific leaders. 
they had assembled an amazing team, and we we had a lot of confidence in them. And Chris, your name ended up being the one on the case, Perry versus Schwarzenegger. What was that like? Yes, it is. Um, it, 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 I, I, and I do love that. I think it's an amazing, and, and honestly, to this day, not entirely sure why, that my name is the one listed when all four plaintiffs, myself and the other three, did exactly the same amount of work. Everybody prepared for trial. Everybody testified. Everybody pitched in behind the scenes to help move the process forward. And to the same as still true today, Jeff and Paul and Sandy and I all work on this equally. So it, it's, I, it, you know, I guess they have to put a name on it, and, and maybe mine's the easiest one to pronounce. But um, it's wonderful to have to have that in my history. So let's talk about the legal team, Ted Olson and David Boyce, two very unlikely people to come together to fight for marriage equality. Well, you would think David would be, but perhaps not Ted. And we've had them both on our show to talk about marriage equality. I just can't say enough about those guys. They're truly wonderful, so articulate, and they can explain the issues around marriage so clearly. But what did you two think when you heard that these two were going to be the ones representing you eventually all the way up to the Supreme Court? Well, I mean, I think like lots of folks in the LGBT or progressive community, when you hear Ted Olson, you you do you do feel concerned that he's on the he's going to be on the other side. He he was the Solicitor General for George Bush. And obviously, he won that case at the Supreme Court. George Bush became president, and he's been on you know the side of a number of issues. I I don't personally necessarily agree with, but I will say he is one of the most you know, famous and outstanding Supreme Court for appellate lawyers in, in America. He understood and really respected David's skill. They're a little different. Um, they're both amazing, but in different ways. So the fact that they had already worked out that they wanted to work together and we would we would be in their in their hands was obviously very assuring. You you said exactly how we feel, which is they're both very articulate, but they're also very warm and supportive. And I don't think lawyers, honestly, are characterized that way very often, but they're two of, lawyers are not lawyers, they're two of the nicest, most um, concerned and compassionate people we've met as a couple. Um, And to this day, just as recently as last week, um, felt welcomed and um, supported and celebrated by them in a way that is extremely unique and special. Yeah, and this was such a personal case. There were so many personal and intimate details involved. I know when we talked with your co-plaintiffs, Jeff Cirillo and Paul Katami, they talked about the family feeling that was created and formed over the course of this journey with not only you two, but also the legal team. What was the experience like for you? Um, you know, for us, this is Sandy, for us that was a, a great experience, and I would really echo uh, what Jeff and Paul said about the fact that we did come, to, come together as a family. And I think particularly um, once the case became a trial, that was a major turning point. Before that, we knew everybody and we heard about the strategy, but we weren't participating in it in a way that was as active and, um, you know, sort of primary. So the day that Judge Fontenwalker uh, stated that he wanted to have a trial and a full presentation of the facts in the case, was the day that we really began to get to know our teammates so much better, and particularly Jeff and Paul, as we spent more time together, um, 
in the trial prep. It just physically had, you know, more time when we were in, a, in the same place. We got to know them quite well. We also got to know the legal team very well, and they got to know us as they prepared us for our depositions. That was uh, done by the more of the, the junior-level lawyers. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we prepared for trial. We were prepared by Ted Olson and uh, Jeff and Paul were prepared by David Boyce. And those were long days of very deep and personal conversations and questions where we really explored um, our own stories. And uh, Ted Olson tried to help us understand ourselves better. It was a remarkable kind of journey inward um, and shared with somebody who we hadn't known that well until then. But I think that experience um, kind of forged a very deep and unique bond between us and Ted. Um, as well as some of the other lawyers that really continues until this day. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, one of the really unique approaches that the attorneys took in presenting this trial was also to wage a public education campaign around marriage equality at the same time. And your boys had a bit of a role to play in that. Uh, Talk about their role and what they did. Um, Well, the younger boys were in eighth grade when we first were approached about being plaintiffs in the case. They are finishing up college in a few weeks, so that's how long this has been going on. And it makes us feel really, really old. Um, (laughs) Hopefully your listeners won't feel as old as we do. They are doing great, and I think all four boys moved through the process the same way we did, in a very iterative you know, stop and start, be patient, be impatient way that any court proceeding is. Um, There would be moments of just absolute euphoria and elation over winning, and everybody felt it, to being frustrated and agitated at the long waits at times. I think we waited almost eight months to hear the ruling for the trial. And And then as time went by, we would wait six or seven more months for an appellate ruling. They went on with their lives as just as we'd hoped they would. They were good at being focused on themselves, and, I, you know, that was a wink and a nod because that's how adolescents are. But in some ways, they were more help to us than they realized because the distraction of their lives and all the things they were doing and getting to spend time with them made the waiting and the, the, the sort of surrealness of it all let, fade, fade away, fade into the background, and we could go on with our ordinary lives, which was really the whole point in the first place, right? We wanted right. to be married, have our, 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 our life in Berkeley, be a family, be recognized and treated the same way as other families. So to be able to just keep doing that while this was going on was what kept us happy and sane and grounded. And, and it's still true to this day when we get to see the kids, now that they're all adults and off doing their own thing, are those are the happiest days because we feel like that takes us back to that time when mm-hmm. we were altogether. Well, yeah, and I think it was a, an important and powerful image every time America got to see the two of you standing together with your two boys as a family. Yep. Um, for them and for us too, right? Because we have we had to fight so hard for that recognition in our own in our own lives, in our own, you know, with each other, with the kids, with our extended family. If if the public was seeing something that helped them too, that was I think that's what Rob and Chad and Ted and David and really wanted America to see happily committed, loving couples um, wanting what they had, wanting the same rights they had, not more rights, just the same rights, because most people recognize the the power of marriage and what it does to stabilize and secure couples. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Sandy, you wrote in the book about the preparation that you had to go through to prepare for the trial. I think you described it as having to toughen up. Talk about some of the most difficult pieces of the trial. You know, I, I think that for me the most difficult thing was um, the deposition. So preparing for the deposition was challenging just in that you're – the questions are quite invasive, and, and they're really testing you and uh, kind of playing devil's advocate quite a bit. So you literally feel like you're defending yourself, and it's almost like you're on trial for being gay. You're on trial for wanting equality. You're on trial for loving someone. And that was just that's just kind of simply an awkward way to prepare for something. But then the deposition itself for me was really a grueling process. Um, and I was really focused on in my deposition because I was the only person of, of the four plaintiffs who had um, been married in a heterosexual relationship before. And because immutability was kind of a key argument of the case, they tried to um, use my testimony to sort of discredit me and to to discredit the concept of immutability um, through me. And they did so by asking just a lot of really quite personal questions about my dating history with men and those relationships and um, asking and insisting that surely I could um, be happy again in that kind of relationship. Um, and I consistently said that um, I had was there because I was in love with a woman and I could not see a future without her and I could not see a future without wanting what I wanted, which, which was to be married to Chris. So that definitely was challenging. Um, it was lengthy. It was exhausting. I was extremely glad when it was over. And, th- and then beyond that, the trial, of course, was quite uh, you know, preparing for the trial was difficult, but also the trial itself and giving our testimony um, was very nerve-wracking, and there was a possibility that it would be uh, televised, and there was a possibility that we'd be cross-examined in a fairly, um, you know, very difficult way. And so we had quite a lot of concern walking into the trial that day that our testimony would be on television by that evening and that any number of, of awkward questions could be asked of us during a cross-examination. Mm-hmm. We were, in fact, relieved and, and when uh, the opposing counsel chose not to cross-examine us. So we did not have to face those questions, but we were well prepared for them. Well, and that was one of the things that was really unique about how this whole legal battle got started. The original Prop 8 hearing in San Francisco was not just a hearing where attorneys argued their points in front of a judge. Judge Von Walker decided to have an actual trial. And I think you wrote in the book that when he announced that he was going to have a trial on marriage equality, you gasped. Uh, Was this something that was completely out of left field for you? Oh, for us, it was completely out of left field. It, It never even occurred to us that you would have a trial for this kind of a case. It hadn't been done before that we know of. Um, and so we, it just was an absolute shock in the courtroom to us and I think to a number of people in that room at that, that day. And while we were very shocked, the lawyers were pleased. And I think uh, in, in retrospect that, that makes total sense because they knew that a full presentation of the facts would in fact strengthen our case immeasurably, you know, far beyond what they could possibly have done on their own. Well, and in the end, it paid off because the decision that Judge Walker wrote was an amazing decision. It was used as a foundation, I'm sure, in many of the other subsequent decisions that were made by appellate courts across the country. But the journey for the Prop 8 case didn't end there. Talk about 
the most difficult part of going through the rest of the process, through the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals all the way up to the Supreme Court? Uh, this is because the, the, I mentioned a moment ago the waiting. The waiting, there's so much waiting. And it's not the kind of waiting like, oh, I planned a vacation for September. I'm waiting to go on vacation. It's, it's a different kind of waiting where you have absolutely no idea when the waiting will ever end. And it's four things as it goes up the chain for on appeal that becomes the stakes feel like they're getting bigger and bigger each time. So you you wait with no idea when it'll end. You're worried that maybe you start to question whether or not you were as strong in argument as you thought you were, and and you become increasingly anxious and nervous about it. When the when they finally decide and want everyone to know, they they mostly give a 24-hour warning. And in each of those cases, whether it was the Ninth Circuit or the California Supreme Court or the United States Supreme Court, um, the legal team would, would very rapidly gather in Los Angeles or San Francisco to review the rulings together and be able to respond immediately to not only us, the plaintiffs, but to all of the supporters that were involved and uh, plenty of other attorneys, the city attorney in San Francisco, uh, the attorney general's office, et cetera, everybody was, was sitting at the edge of their seat waiting to hear what these results would be because in it, at any given point, if we had lost on appeal, we would have been right back where we started, which was in that terrible place of knowing that every single day Prop 8 was on the book, couples, individuals were being harmed by the law, more and more people were you know, getting older and becoming 18 and able to marry and starting to experience the very same thing I did when I came out at 18 of living in a state that didn't recognize me as a full-fledged citizen, uh, relegated me, Sandy, and so many others to second-class citizenship, it would have been devastating um, to thousands of couples if we had lost anywhere along the line. So the fun part about winning is all of that is immediately erased, and you're in a celebratory mood until you realize one day later they're appealing again. So um, it's a very zigzaggy long process, but lawyers all said it went as fast as they've ever seen it. So I guess plaintiffs aren't as patient as lawyers. Well, it's hard to be patient when it's such a personal issue that impacts you directly. So let's move ahead to March of 2013. The case is now in the hands of the United States Supreme Court. Talk about what it was like to travel back to D.C. and witness the Supreme Court, the highest court in the nation, hear your case. Um, Well, that day in March and that time in our lives was you know, we were, we felt remarkably grateful that our case was being heard by the Supreme Court of the United States, and and we also really felt the weight of how very important that day was. It was an opportunity for the evidence that was gathered at the trial to be examined by the Supreme Court, and, you know, the trial itself um, brought forth such amazing, compelling evidence and proof uh, that discrimination harms people in every way, economically, socially, emotionally, psychologically, and that it harms children, it harms families, it harms lives. Um, So we felt like this opportunity for the Supreme Court to consider these facts and this evidence was a remarkable opportunity, and we had high hopes for for that happening. Um, During the actual hearing, the the Supreme Court justices quickly focused on um, issues around standing, and that was indicative of their interest in, um, in the issue of standing over some of the evidence. And that part of the hearing you know, was somewhat disappointing in that we felt 
so strongly that the evidence should be considered, um, you know, in, in, a, in a really important way. Um, that said, we still felt, you know, hopeful that we would have a positive outcome. Um, I also remember feeling just kind of shocked on some level as we pulled up to the Supreme Court and saw so, so many people in front. It was just a, a, truly a sea of both um, people supporting our case and people opposing our case, just thinking the enormity of that day and how unbelievable it was that we had to go all the way to the Supreme Court just because we wanted to be married. That wow. you have to fight that hard with that many people for that many years for the same rights that other people take for granted and engage in every day. Well, it was a landmark case and a landmark decision. I mean, arguably one of the most important cases in our lifetime. So as you sat in the Supreme Court and witnessed this whole thing go down with the justices, what are the moments that stand out to you? You know, I think for me that more than anything, the standout quote would be when Justice Kennedy said, what about the children of the, all these families? I mean, where are their voices? Don't you think their voices should be considered? And, you know, that, was, that, were, that one really spoke to me and to Chris and I both because, you know, we knew that the reason that we wanted to be in this case and we thought it was so important is that um, there are generations of people who will, be, who will live in California. There are kids growing up right now who haven't come out yet or will come out, you know, maybe they're three years old, they'll come out someday. But we know the impact of discrimination on children and we know the inca- impact of um, having parents who didn't have the same rights, how, how that can impact the children negatively. And we had always felt like we were all in this case for, you know, reasons and for people far beyond ourselves, that we wanted to improve the lives of other people in California and in the country if we possibly could, and that that would be by far the most satisfying outcome of the case. Um, because Chris and I really were in a position of protecting our family uh, with all the legal protections that people do, and we were economically secure um, in our own, you know, careers. So. The, the voices of those children matter to us, that we were really glad to hear that they matter to Justice Kennedy as well. Yeah, I agree. I think that was a really powerful statement as well. So fast forward again to June 26, 2013. Four years ago tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court makes their decision, announces their decision about Proposition 8. And then it seemed like just moments afterwards that I saw Chris and Sandy getting married by then-Attorney General Kamala Harris on TV. Was that all planned out, or did it all happen sort of spontaneously? Um, that happened. That, that was not really planned, and it, and it came together very, very quickly. So the day of the decision, which was, of course, an amazing day, and we were all on cloud nine, so excited. The lawyers said, we know this is great. We're all super happy about it, and yet um, don't expect the state to be lifted immediately because that's very, very unlikely. It will be lifted in, you know, two to three weeks. We had assumed, you know, about a 20-day or so period of time between the ruling and when the stay was lifted, and Chris and I literally thought to ourselves, okay, that gives us just enough time to, to pull together a wedding. And so we were beginning to make plans for how we, we would get, you know, legally married the moment the stay was lifted, what would, that would look like, what we would wear, who we would have with us, how we would get all the kids to be there at the same time, which was very important to us, and, and the kids were living in different states and traveling um, so we were actually very excited about having that amount of time to celebrate. In fact, what happened was we got a call, you know, just two days later um, from Gibson and Dunn lawyers saying there's a chance the stay will be lifted today, and that was completely surprising to us. 
and to them as well. And so we all, uh, those of us who could, which were just Chris um, Elliott and I, made a beeline to San Francisco to the Gibson and Dome law offices, literally dropped what we were doing in that moment, um, and went to, to San Francisco and waited for a while, just hanging out in the office trying to figure out what was going to happen. And then they got a they got a call saying, hey, come down to, um, to City Hall. We think it's, it's probably going to be lifted soon. Uh, he literally went to the restroom at Gibson and Dunn and changed into, um, you know, dresses and suits and hopped in our car and, and went to City Hall and waited on the curb to see if it was lifted. And, you know, within minutes, we, you know, the, our team came out because by then the, the members of the A14, the American Foundation for Equal Rights team, had all heard the same thing, that there was a possibility of the state being lifted. So those individuals who could came to San Francisco and we all, you know, ran to City Hall together, and, and, you know, people had gotten flowers for us, which was fantastic. We had Elliot, and then Chad Griffin had managed to secure Kamala, and she literally came running across the grass to marry us. All of us were, um, you know, had not planned on this happening on that day, and we were so thrilled that Kamala was available and, uh, inter- you know, wanted to marry us, and she was absolutely enthusiastic and, you know, performed our wedding so beautifully, and we were just so grateful to have her. And then, in fact, we had the San Francisco uh, Gay Men's Choir. They had been practicing nearby, and a bunch of them came over and serenaded us as well uh, right after we got married, and that was very, very beautiful, and we'll always remember that. Yeah, I think that was a really, really amazing day and a very important event for our community. I distinctly remember watching you two get married on TV, and I'm sure there were many people out there that were celebrating with you on that special day. So I read recently that KQED Television in San Francisco has petitioned the court to get the videotapes of the original Prop 8 trial with Judge Von Walker that we already talked about released. Uh, The trial itself was videotaped, but those videotapes were sealed and not made available to the public. Why is it important now for those tapes to be made available and for people to see them? There There is as much need for the public to see them as there was the day it happened. I, uh, the arguments KQED are making are just basic common sense. This is settled law. It's been to the Supreme Court a number of times. It's won over and over and over again. We have marriage equality in all 50 states. We are not biasing a judge at a lo- in a lower court by, by releasing the tapes. There's also something to be said about the, the nature of, of minority groups and their history and erasing them or preventing the rest of the public from seeing that their, their fights or their struggles. And, and last but not least, KQED is a, is a public television station. They are interested in educating the public. This is a public, this, in my opinion, you know, as a non-attorney, it's public property. We, we were in a public courtroom. Um, if you were fortunate to get a seat that day, you could see it all. Uh, if you want to listen to it, you can. But there's something very, very different from listening or reading or even going there live from watching it laid back in front of you all of our anxiety on display, all of our fear, all of our worry, and then at times all of our relief when things were going in the, in the direction we had hoped. We were four of the witnesses, but there were 17 other witnesses that came to court and spent hours and hours and hours being examined and cross-examined. If the public saw the level of effort and the amount of expertise entered into the record, it might do even more to erase prejudice. It might do even more to help 
people that haven't changed their minds yet to change their minds. It, it could be a really good resource for educating future generations or this this generation. Well, I totally agree, and I really do hope that they release the tapes. You know, as a teacher of LGBT history, I would love to be able to share with my students and future generations that have no concept about what happened to Prop 8 to give them a look inside the courtroom. It, it doesn't get any better than that. So let's talk about the future. We're, we're clearly in different times here, and there's a lot of fear around where LGBT rights are headed. With respect to marriage, do you think that marriage equality is at risk? I think we do feel like it's at risk. We feel like our rights are at risk. We hear, you know, we are we hearing so much from some of the incoming administration about uh, their values and what they believe in and what they don't believe in. And I, I do feel like, you know, the, the equality that we fought so hard for is at risk. And we certainly don't want to see anything be undone. We don't want to roll back any of our rights. That would be outrageous. And it would, uh, you know, we, we would certainly continue fighting. But we do not take this right for granted. We do not take um, this level of equality for granted. Absolutely, we can't when we hear what we hear every day. So what are you telling people to do? What are you telling members of our community that they should be doing right now today? You should be engaging in the political process. Uh, You should take great note of who represents you, not only in Washington, D.C., but at the state capitol, on your school board, in your city, in your county, Those individuals are sitting in seats of great power, and you are one of the voices that they listen to to make decisions. Those decisions are are about LGBT individuals and their rights, but they're about so many other policies that govern the quality of our lives. Is our water safe to drink? Is our air safe to breathe? Is the school down the street a safe place, much less an excellent place, to get an education? Are you able to be treated if you're sick? Those decisions are being made by individuals elected to public office, and we all learned a lesson last November about the importance of elections. Whether we agree or disagree about the outcome, we can agree that there was an election and there were winners and losers, and they're running government now. If you don't agree with how they're running government, you have to not only be active yourself, you need to contribute to people you support, and you have to make your voice heard. Well said, well said. And I think your book, Love on Trial, will be a great reminder of what we have to lose. It's been a hard fight, and we need to hang on to it. Talk about where people can go to get a copy of your book. Our book is available on Amazon, certainly. That's a very easy way to get the book, and it's also available in bookstores. Great. And where can people go to follow you? Um, For us, they can follow us on Facebook or Roaring Forties Press or Love on Trial. So those are all handles on Facebook, and we're, you know, we'd love to hear from people who are interested in the book and in the case, and um, yeah. Great, and we'll put links to where you can find the book, as well as where you can follow Sandy Steyer and Chris Perry on our website at OutBeatNews.com. The book is called Love on Trial. I just want to take a moment to thank you both for your courage in bringing this case forward and for standing up and fighting for the rights that we all now enjoy today. Thank you so much for having us today. And here's then California Attorney General Kamala Harris performing the marriage ceremony for Chris and Sandy in San Francisco City Hall four years ago. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, friends and family. We are here today to celebrate the beautiful relationship between Kristen Perry and Sandra Steer. 
Today, we witness not only the joining of Chris and Sandy, but the realization of their dream. I could not be more honored to stand here today to join the two of them in marriage. Now Sandy and Chris will pledge their love and devotion to one another as they share their vows with each other. Do you, Chris, take Sandy to be your lawfully wedded wife to love and cherish from this day forward? I do. And do you, Sandy, take Chris to be your lawfully wedded wife to love and cherish from this day forward? I do. Let the rings exchanged and the vows declared symbolize your commitment, sincerity, and affection, and may your love never falter. By virtue of the power and authority vested in me by the state of California, I now declare you spouses for life. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks to Abby, Chris, and Sandy for celebrating Pride Weekend with us. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. In the meantime, happy Pride, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. You're broken down and tired Of living life on the merry-go-round you can't find a fighter But I see it in you So we gon' walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out And move mountains And I'll Silence is quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we would take the world to its feet Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from members and from Sonoma West Publishers bringing you the Sonoma West Times and News, the Healdsburg Tribune, Cloverdale Reveille, and Windsor Times, providing independent journalism and local community conversations in print and online at sonomawest.com. You're listening to KRCBFM Windsor and K215CQ Santa Rosa. Radio 91, online all the time at krcb.org. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Open Space District is next.